0: Hi, everyone. Kirsten Smith here. I work with Melissa at the Center on Global Energy Policy here at Columbia University, and I'm also one of the people that works behind the scenes on the podcast. You may remember me from the Energy Road Trip episode last fall. I'm filling in for Melissa, who's out this week, and we've got something a little different for you today. These past few episodes, we've talked a lot about hydrogen, and one of the overarching questions that comes up is how do we increase hydrogen production so we can really move the needle on decarbonizing heavy industry? The problem is, the main way we currently make hydrogen, by using methane from natural gas, relies on fossil fuels. And as we know, fossil fuels generate a lot of carbon pollution. We actually have a whole episode dedicated to hydrogen coming up in a few weeks, where we're going to talk about new ways to make it using only zero carbon energy. But this week, we're bringing you the story of one person who spent a decade developing a cleaner way to make hydrogen. It's an episode of one of our favorite podcasts. It's called What It Takes. You know, watt, like megawatt or gigawatt, because they're energy nerds just like us. The show tells the stories of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, successes, and breakthroughs. It's hosted by the wonderful Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse Ventures, a venture capital fund that invests in companies supporting decarbonization. Today's episode is with Rob Hansen, co-founder and CEO of Monolith, a clean energy and industrial materials manufacturer that was recently awarded a $1 billion conditional loan guarantee by the Department of Energy. Emily talks to Rob about his journey to founding Monolith, what the DOE loan means for the company, and the future of clean hydrogen. Here's the episode, and we hope you enjoy. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder
1: and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate positive future a reality. Heavy industry is one of the hardest parts of the economy to decarbonize. Making steel, cement, and chemicals takes a lot of heat, a lot of electricity, and a lot of expensive equipment. Take hydrogen, a gas used to produce ammonia for fertilizer that puts food on all of our tables. Hydrogen is also a promising fuel source for transportation and electricity that's attracted hundreds of billions of dollars in global investment. Every year, the world produces millions of tons of hydrogen through a dirty process where steam and natural gas react, creating lots of CO2 and lots of carbon monoxide. For hydrogen to be a truly clean fuel, we have to change how it's made. And our guest, Monolith co-founder and CEO Rob Hansen is doing exactly that and creating new industrial materials in the process.
2: We, we believe in a high energy, low emission future. And so we've been working on this really cool technology called methane pyrolysis, which uh, splits methane into its two core components, which is hydrogen and solid carbon. And if you make it work, it has these really uh, awesome implications.
1: Monolith bills itself as a clean hydrogen and clean materials company. It uses methane pyrolysis to create hydrogen and plans to use renewable methane to create carbon negative hydrogen. And with the method that Monolith is perfecting, there's an added bonus.
2: Not only were we taking the carbon out as this solid product, so it's never ending up as CO2 in the atmosphere, we actually found a way to create value on that solid carbon side. And we make this this chemical called carbon black, which is something no no one's really heard of, but everyone uses every day.
1: Carbon black is everywhere. Most of it goes towards strengthening rubber tires. Every car trip you take, carbon black is there with you. It's also pigment in inks, plastics, and even makeup. The process for making carbon black generates sulfur, carbon dioxide, and other noxious emissions. But Monolith has found another way.
2: Our process operates at uh, really the highest temperature of any process on the planet right now. And so there's just been, you know, a lot of innovation required over the past 10 years.
1: The methane pyrolysis process has been around since the early 1900s. But before 2020, when Monolith launched its Olive Creek plant in Nebraska, no one had run methane pyrolysis at commercial scale. The science wasn't easy, but after lots of experimentation and operation, Monolith has figured out a way to make hydrogen and carbon black with far less pollution than conventional methods.
2: And we've now just built a really big machine to do that at industrial scale, you know, all day, every day. And I mean, we're just going into it, you know, head first, full force.
1: I sat down with Rob to hear how he approaches hard technical problems as an entrepreneur and how Monolith became the first to secure a billion dollar conditional loan guarantee from the Department of Energy's revamped loan programs office. We also talked about his foray into solar thermal, his troubles raising capital, and how he hopes Monolith will move the needle on industrial decarbonization. We started with his childhood in Northern Canada and how his parents first taught him and his two brothers to think critically. Rob, you grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan in northern Canada. Your dad was an engineer, your mom was a teacher, and you have two brothers. What do you remember most about your family and your childhood and and how do you think it influenced you?
2: It was cold. <laughs> Very cold, like minus fifty degrees Celsius. Yeah. Yeah, there's some days where Saskatoon is literally the coldest place on the planet and, you know, colder than Mars in many, many cases. So we spent a lot of time indoors, especially in the winter. And, I mean, one of my really fond memories of childhood is on the weekends, uh, it was kind of this family tradition. And we, we'd we get up, uh, all of us, you know, at kind of different times in the morning. And for a couple of hours, we would just debate whatever the topic was, you know, current event or, you know, anything really. Um and and it was it was you know spirited, um, you know always with good intention, and uh, I, I just remember that so fondly of having these you know grand debates about whatever the topic du jour was, uh, and now like reflecting back right as you know someone that has kids of of their own, it, you know what my parents were doing it 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 wasn't about what we believed on these topics or what we thought about was more like how we thought. And so they're teaching us how to think, right, and and be able to take lots of different perspectives and make arguments without getting your ego or your emotions uh, involved in it. And it, it was just really fun and like a really fond memory of, of you know, growing up in a cold, dark place.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you told me about your mom taking time off from teaching to get her master's degree while you were in middle school, and then she worked her way up the school district uh, to become the CEO of a 50,000-student school district. I know that you've asked your mom for CEO advice. What kind of advice have you asked her for?
2: Yeah, I mean, she had such a big job, right? So I think she had something like six superintendents reported to her, and then there was hundreds of principals beneath that and like literally thousands of teachers. And so... She used to describe if a problem got to her desk, it's because it had filtered all the way up through several layers that couldn't solve it. So literally her days were just like the hardest problems. And typically the hardest problems are people problems. And so that's where I've often kind of leaned on her as advice when I'm dealing with, you know, harder people situations within the company. And then the other one is, you know, her boss was the school board, uh, publicly elected school board. So I'm sure you've got a board, Emily. I've got a a large board, and um, you know it's one of the challenging parts about being a CEO is is managing your board and also you know being managed by them. And so I've leaned on her a lot for you know her experience of of you know having a a publicly elected board, and then in her retirement she's sat on a lot of different boards. So she brings lots of that experience, which is fun.
1: Uh, I know you went to the University of Saskatchewan, where you earned a Bachelor's in Mechanical Engineering and then a Master's in Mechanical Engineering at Stanford. While at Stanford, you and some other engineering students workshopped some novel startup ideas, including an early version of Tinder. But upon (laughs) graduation, you had a choice between a job at Tesla and a job at a solar thermal startup called AUSRA. Uh, You chose the solar thermal job. Why? Why?
2: <laughs> maybe not the best uh financial decision of my <laughs> career <laughs> you didn't know know the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah we also we also workshopped a maternity clothing company uh yeah tinder we call it blind dateable uh, we had a shaving company it was really fun it was kind of a cool part of Stanford right is this is the technology venture formations business plan class and we started with all these like you know like 20-something college kids do what was exciting at the time. And then eventually we got pushed into, hey, this is technology venture formation. So we ultimately <laughs> landed on working on a early diagnostic company for Alzheimer's, which was really cool and was like formative for me to get to see that as an engineer, you can actually start companies. Like I, I didn't know that earlier in my career. And it is like a powerful part of, I mean, where you grew up, right? In Silicon Valley or just North and 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 where I got to spend a bunch of time then my 20s and 30s. It's, it's such a powerful part. It's like, it's just in the DNA there that you can start companies. So, so then for me to sorry to, to, to get back to your question, um, you know, then coming out, I wasn't quite ready to start something, um, but I wanted to join a startup. And this was Cleantech 1.0. And I really like big systems. Like that's what kind of gets me. I studied energy systems modeling in my master's. And so the thought of building like giant solar power plants in the deserts of the world just connected with me more than than EVs did at the time. And so that was the driving force to, to go into solar thermal.
1: And then AUSRA was acquired by the French nuclear energy company Arriva in 2010. And by then the price of solar thermal energy just couldn't compete with the rapidly falling cost of photovoltaics. What was it like to witness an innovative technology that you worked on struggle to gain traction in the
2: market? It was formative. I mean, It it, kind of taught me that because we did get the technology to work, like we really did, and and we met our objective when we started. It was three bucks a watt; we got it down to two bucks a watt, and like it worked. Um, But that's not enough in many cases. So that was the the learning part because obviously PV did its thing from maybe three to a buck a watt. Um, So it was cool to know that yes, technology is at the center of many of these, you know, climate or at the time they call it clean tech companies, but it's not the only thing. You know, you got to get other things right beyond that, and and there we just missed the competition. So, as is always the case, it became obvious to us, kind of in the trenches and the working levels of the company before it did to, you know, management. Um, and it was it was just like a visceral lesson to learn of what it feels like to be in a company where the competition has has passed you by, and you weren't going to catch up.
1: Yeah, that's rough. And and it sounds like you were aware of that before management. What was that like?
2: It's all like kind of new, but I I think like now I I look at you know the team and especially sometimes the the newer members of the team you know at at Monolith and I'm like what do they know that I don't know (laughs) because it's a lot yeah (laughs) and so that that's probably a lesson I learned from there having you know sometimes you just have to experience things viscerally to actually you know have them internalize into your thinking every day and that's one that that did and influences how I think today.
1: Tell me about the person who became your co-founder, Pete Johnson. How did you meet? And then how did you two decide to start Monolith together?
2: Yeah, so Pete's the guy that convinced me not to go to Tesla. (laughs) (laughs) Pete hired me at Austria. He was my first boss. And uh, he he grew up in Salt Lake City um, and, you know, kind of similar, you know, I went to University of Saskatchewan, he went to University of Utah. So, you know, not the, you know, top schools that everyone's heard of, but we both found our way to Stanford and both kind of like, Got that Silicon Valley entrepreneurship bug bite us, um, and and so we worked together first. Which I think there's some research that like that often makes really good co-founders because our relationship wasn't based on you know we played sports together or we you know were siblings or something. It was it was based on a mutual respect for each other's ability to kind of do work in this field, um, and so we loved working together. I mean, we traveled all around the world doing solar development. Uh, and then kind of towards the end, we just started brainstorming, maybe not unlike that uh, business class experience, kind of just, what do we want to do next? And it was in that, you know, brainstorming that we said, yeah, we want to do something. We want to do something in the energy transition. And so that's how we met.
1: And then how did you come to settle on methane pyrolysis? I know you looked at a bunch of different fuel alternatives. So, so yeah, why, why methane pyrolysis?
2: Looking back, it was like such a fortunate time in a person's career. Like we almost had a year where we were just looking for what to do next. And it wasn't with a lens of like it has to be X or Y technology. It it was really a couple of key things that we believed in. And, And that was that we wanted to do something clean. That's like where our passion was. We wanted to devote our career to the energy transition. But two, we wanted to find something that was economically viable today. So we were kind of living through solar and, you know, we were spending all our time, not all of our time, but lots of our time, you know, lobbying for ITCs, other things like that. We just thought like, if you really want to have a big impact, you got to find that, you know, unicorn that is both clean and cost effective. So that was the lens. And so so then we looked at kind of everything in the energy transition. We looked at all types of different battery chemistries, um, and then we started looking at, you know, various waste to fuels and then gas to liquids. And it was in that process, actually, out of Idaho National Labs, we found some interesting research on taking natural gas and pulling the carbon out as the solid. And we're like, well, that's a cool way to make clean hydrogen. It's, it's You don't have CO2, you've got the solid carbon. And then when we kind of got to the part where, oh, and it's not just solid carbon you bury in the ground, it's solid carbon that you can get a lot of value for. And you also replace, in that case, this petrochemical carbon block that has its own huge emission stream. And so it's kind of this like double win where you make clean hydrogen, you offset the emissions from this other industry, and you create economic value on that side. So the whole kind of economics work. And it was just in that when that one kind of came across, it was like light bulb. This is the one we want to work on. Uh, and then we went to France which I can talk more about that experience at the right time.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to I want to hear all about France, um but maybe before tell me about what what was so meaningful about that discovery? Like what what does it mean to have the source of hydrogen and the source of carbon black? Like what does that mean for the world?
2: Yeah, and this gets into, you know, another one of our theses is like thinking about energy, you've got to think about deep time, right? Cuz when you think of the energy system of today, I mean, even today, it's still 80% fossil fuels. And the reason it's 80% fossil fuels is because it's this huge amount of energy, It's right? It's solar energy stored in the bonds, uh, the chemical bonds between carbon and hydrogen, but that accumulated over like hundreds of millions of years. And so that's powerful, right? Like there, there's a lot of like fundamental energy stored there. And the challenge is when you release that energy by burning those fossil fuels, you release the CO2 from the ancient atmosphere into today's atmosphere and you've got, climate change. And and so I think we were just like touching that of, well, what if you could take the carbon out? Like, what if you could take the solid carbon out so you're not transferring the carbon through deep time? You just transfer the hydrogen, which is the, you know, about 60% of the energy in the case of, of methane. And so I think like, we didn't quite have it articulated the way I just did, but we knew there was something there. There was something like powerful about taking methane and pulling the carbon out as a solid and being left with, you know, the hydrogen as still a big part of the energy vector, still doing that deep time transfer, but in a way that doesn't transfer the CO2.
1: So you realize this is a big deal and then you go to France. Why do you go to France?
2: Um, so there being, we didn't invent methane pyrolysis. The, the first patent is actually from 1918. So people have been working on this for a hundred years and it's kind of been this, this interesting curiosity, kind of what I just said, right? Some kind of smarter people before us. But the current kind of state-of-the-art was uh, at a French university called Means Paris Tech, a professor named Professor Laurent Foucherie. And he'd been working at pilot scale for like 25 years and we made contact with him and he said, you know, come out see my lab. And so uh, we headed down to the south of France, not a hard place to visit. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, usually when we were doing lab visits, you'd get kind of a poster, some paper studies, maybe a video. And we did that and then he's like, do you want to see the, do you want me to see me turn it on? And, you know, it's this pilot plant that fits inside a room and it's got, you know, hoses and wires and everything coming out of it. And he goes into the room and a bunch of, you know, French engineers start speaking in French, which I kind of understand. And then all of a sudden it turns on and it's like lightning inside a can and it's loud and it's bright. And it just had this like really exciting, like this thing actually works. Um, and it, it was just like different, right? It was a professor who not only knew all of the kind of academic, but he also could make it work. And yes, it was pilot scale, but it was just someone we wanted to partner with. And, and Laurent's been part of the company until today. He's in California today, you know, with the team. Um, and he's just been like really essential to our success because he has that ability to like make things work.
1: Oh wow! I didn't realize that. So yeah, you 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 roped him into the company. You were like, "We want to do this at scale."
2: Yeah, and he's he's. I mean, he's still a tenured professor at, at Means Paris Tech. But uh, we've done ongoing research with them. We have a team that goes back and forth to France. Uh, he keeps running that pilot plant that I talked about. It it runs, and now we you know use it for advanced R and D. And like I said, he he comes to California and he comes to Nebraska and sees our plant, and it's it's just been like a great partnership. Um, and he's a real thought leader in this space. So it's been fun to have him along for the whole journey.
1: So after witnessing this experiment in France, you came home, ran the numbers, and realized that this could be huge, as you said, not only for emission reductions, but also that production of carbon black could be really lucrative financially. What kind of impact were you anticipating at the time? Did you have a sense that you wanted to build at the scale that you have already built and the scale that you want to build in the future?
2: Yeah, so you know, carbon black, for example, 15 million tons a year, um, and there's a couple hundred plants, so we always knew we'd have to build, you know, one of these big plants. And this is where you get into that infrastructure side of it. You know, building one of these big plants is like a billion dollar project. So right from the start, we knew that and where we are did you the get math. We're getting a billion and... dollars. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yep, all of you, all of you. <laughs> so, so you know, we did the math financially, but we also did the math on a uh, lifecycle greenhouse gas. Uh, side, both from the hydrogen and the carbon black side, and it works out to one of those big plants reduces uh, full cycle CO two equivalent by about a million tons a year. So that was like exciting, right? That's that's a real number. You know, there's a couple hundred plants in this scale, um, and then obviously the hydrogen side is much bigger yet still, but kind of check that box of this wasn't going to be a curiosity. This this could be something that has real impact. And because it's got economics that are fundamental, um, you could imagine it actually scaling to that um, in a relatively short period of time.
1: So you and Pete with this information, you form Monolith and began fundraising in 2012, which was an awful time to be fundraising (laughs) in venture capital in general, certainly in in the climate tech space, um, then then known as the clean tech space. Um, And especially for companies like Monolith that are so capital intensive. I know you went to everyone in Silicon Valley to fundraise. They all, not only did they say no, they said you should just start a software company instead. Uh, (laughs) What did you do with that negative feedback?
2: I think we were just like, we know we're right, and maybe it was almost like that youthful arrogance of, like, the world's going to need to build assets. And and it was also maybe by necessity, like, yeah, we can code, but not that well. <laughs> <laughs> so we weren't really going to be able to build a software company. So yeah, I mean, it was also humbling. It's, it's kind of like anytime you get a bunch of no's, you start to question, like, okay, am I really cut out for this? Are we maybe not the right people to be doing this? Is this, you know, should we just go, you know, work for Google or or one of the big tech companies, which were all rising at that time? Um, so we certainly had, while we ha- had a lot of excitement and optimism, it wasn't without the occasional piece of doubt.
1: What do you think made you decide to continue given that doubt that you were facing?
2: I think we were just having so much fun. Like, you know, we we're putting the pieces together and, ultimately we got to methane pyrolysis, but there was tons of cool technologies that we looked at along the way. And I mean, our relationship was strong and it was it was just really fun. Like it was that fun technical work that probably Pete and I, when we were working together at the previous company, enjoyed the most together. And this phase we also really enjoyed it.
1: So you eventually formed a relationship with Lux Capital and raised your first round, which was a $10 million Series A, which helped you build the first demo plant in Redwood City in the San Francisco Bay Area. Tell me about that first demo plant and what lessons did you learn from the first project?
2: Sure. And um, just so that I'm clear, uh, Lux Capital played like a critical role, but they actually didn't invest. Um, they were not our first investor, but I mean, Peter Hebert, he's he's still a good friend. He's was one of the rare folks in Silicon Valley at that time that was like willing to work with you on these deep tech hardware type energy transition, uh, projects. And so they were awesome. Um, and I mean, we did get to a term sheet, but it just wasn't the right fit. And, and, you know, they, Peter especially has been great to us ever since. Um, but we ultimately ended up then going outside of Silicon Valley to kind of more traditional energy investors, Warburg Pincus and Azimuth Capital, which are both um, private equity funds. And they funded the first kind of phase of it, which was tranched. And like I said, $10 million to start. Uh, and we wanted to basically take what Laurent had in that lab and scale it up into not a commercial unit, but a demonstration unit. So something that would run 24 hours a day, produce kind of hundreds of kilograms an hour, um, and really proved that the technology's economics were what we thought it was, and that was really fun. That was four years. It was incredibly technical work. We made all types of discoveries, like fundamental discoveries about chemistry and about physics. That, um, you know, it was just thrilling to make.
1: What was your favorite discovery?
2: <laughs> I think some of it was, you know, it. Like I said, it sounds simple to split methane. But there's a lot more that goes into it. So it's not just methane and electricity. There's other chemistry that happens. And some of this is is really complex chemistry um, that you would have never thought of, and you can kind of do some modeling around. But the only way you really know if it's true is to actually build, you know, in this case, a ten million dollar machine, get up to these incredible temperatures with you know this giant plasma torch and, put this chemistry in and measure what happens. And usually it wouldn't be what you wanted, but like once every 20 times it was. And I don't know, I think that's like what gets people hooked in academia, right? Is like you actually discover something. What was like doubly thrilling here for us as entrepreneurs is you discover something and you could see how it has economic value. And so that that was like so fun. And so it's the chemistry ones that were were really fascinating for us.
1: So since, since that initial, Backing, I know, like you said, you've raised from a number of private equity funds and strategics. Um, say more about who you've worked with and what advice would you give to entrepreneurs that are raising capital in the hard tech space based on your experience?
2: Yeah, so so I'll just kind of go through the list. So uh, Warburg, Azimuth, and then another private equity Cornell Capital. So they're kind of our major shareholders. Uh, then we've got a couple of uh, smaller but financial um, imperative Science Ventures, and Perry Creek Capital. Then we've got three strategic, so NextEra, Largest Wind and Solar, because our number one input to our process is renewable electricity. Um, that's what drives the process. It's really you know, electrification of, of this process. Uh, and then Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and SK from Japan and South Korea, who are some of the most forward-leaning countries as it relates to hydrogen. So that's the mix. Uh, advice I give to entrepreneurs, I think think beyond the next year or two, and definitely think beyond what the valuation is of this round. It's it's just, these companies take a decade plus to build, and it won't always be going well. And so don't put yourself in a position where you get a local optimum, but not a global one. Um, just because the market's hot, don't like run your valuation way up because you find one person that's willing to write that check. Yeah, and it's it's hard because it's like, Someone's willing to say you're worth X, and you put that on paper, and you're like, it's real. It's not real, right? It's 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 like, what's real is when you actually build the company, get all the way to the end, um, and you know, get liquidity if that's your thing. And eventually, you'll come to the conclusion that like that's not even the fun part, right? It's like you get to the end, you're going to be like, ah, I remember when I was back. You know, like we just reminisced. and, and that's the part that's the exciting part. And so. That's my advice to, to entrepreneurs: is, is like don't get caught up in that. There will be people that try to get you caught up in it, but like try to focus on what you're building. And if it's deep tech, I mean, it's going to take a long time. And so try to pick partners that you know are going to work for the long term. Maybe there's a marriage analogy in here. <laughs>
1: So speaking of raising capital and, and that great advice, uh, in December of 2021, so about two months ago, DOE awarded Monolith a billion dollar conditional loan guarantee to scale up clean hydrogen production at the Olive Creek plant in Nebraska, um, just how did that come to be a billion-dollar loan? I've never heard anything like this, um, uh, at least not kind of amongst this this cohort of startups that that has been created within the past 10 years. Um, tell me about how did it come to be, and what does this, this government backing allow you to do?
2: Yeah, so where we're at kind of with the technology is we've, uh, after that kind of California plant, we then scaled up and built the full commercial unit, so one of them, um, and that's in Nebraska, and that's up and running and and that was kind of a 100 million dollar asset. And so it's full commercial scale, but it's not a full commercial scale plant yet. Like we were talking about it, it's it's not, you know, one of those 100 carbon black plants in the world that's supplying 1% of the the supply. To do that, we've actually got to build 12 of those units all at the same facility. And that was always the plan. But to go from 1 to 12 is, you know, going from 100 million to a billion. And so so we knew that kind of just doing that on equity, um, private equity or, you know, we weren't ready to, you know, Go out and be public at this time. We just thought that that's probably not the best way because it's not necessarily replicable. So we wanted to do asset level financing, and uh, that's when we came across this LPO uh, loan program office uh, with the Department of Energy. It's it's famous because it funded Tesla's first factory, uh, five or six hundred million dollars, and kind of launched Tesla. Um, and it's been a really successful program. They've done like 35 loans, um, around $35 billion, wind, solar, EV. Um, they've done nuclear. They've done geothermal. And uh, so we applied in 2019, and it took us two years. And I mean, they put you through diligence like I've never <laughs> experienced before. It was intense, right? And and it's also debt, which debt is like half glass empty, right? You, you come in and, and say X, and they're going to say like, no, 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 it's X divided by three. Um, and if it's on the cost side, it's x times three, and so uh, it was really quite enlightening to see that. But it was also important because you know we want to build tens, hundreds of these plants, and we're going to have to go through this. We're going to have to tap into that global infrastructure dollars, dead end project equity, and it's a different way of thinking than you know the growth equity that we'd been used to. Um, so, so that's kind of how we found it. That, that was the process, and then. You know, Jigger Shaw, who you know and you've had on the pod, right? Um, he took over the loan program uh, under the Biden administration. So we've spanned both administrations. But I mean, he really is like bringing that program into its full force and effect in like only the way that someone like Jigger can. And so, so he's really pushed this hard. Uh, he's been a great partner. Um, and we're just super excited to get to this kind of. Penultimate step, which is the conditional commitment, and then we'll work on the closing conditions this year, and, and we're planning to break ground on the project in 2022.
1: Tell me about about the Olive Creek plant. You mentioned it's in Nebraska. Why Nebraska, and what impact has has it already had on the local economy?
2: Yeah, so we wanted to, um, you know, we wanted to scale up the the project or the uh, technology from the Bay Area, and we looked all around the country. And like I said, the number one input into our process is electricity, and we want that electricity to be clean in the long run because we're like an electric car. The full life cycle is dependent on how clean the electricity source is. So Nebraska is really cool. Not a lot of people know about Nebraska, but it's the only state in the country that has 100% public power. So all of the electricity is through public power districts, which have these publicly elected boards, and they're nonprofits. So there's not a profit motive in the selling of electricity. The second part of Nebraska is they've got incredible infrastructure. So the 345 transmission infrastructure, road and rail infrastructure, natural gas infrastructure. And then the last one is, you wouldn't think about it, but they're one of the best renewable states. They are probably top three for wind and you know, middle of the pack for solar. And so when you combine those two, they've got this huge renewable potential. And then the last piece is, uh, they've got a really great nuclear asset. Um the Cooper nuclear station, it's, its you know, permitted for, you know, a couple more decades and, you know, in a good cost position. So kind of all those things came together for us there, the infrastructure, the electricity model, and then the electricity pricing and the cleanliness of the electricity, particularly as you look forward in time to getting, you know, really deeply decarbonized electricity. Uh, and so that's where we ended up there. Now, we're not the only people that have figured this out. What we've seen in Iowa and Nebraska here is a bunch of data centers. So... Kind of same thing they're solving for, right? which is affordable and clean electricity. So that's actually been good because it's validated that you know we weren't we weren't way off base for what is our most important input um, And so, yeah, that's why we're here,
1: and then tell me about the economic development impact. the jobs that have been created will be created,
2: so the first thing we did is we moved like fifty people from California to Nebraska, uh, myself and my family included so that that's that's probably a whole pot on its own, <laughs> but it's it's been really fun. Um, and then we hired. We've hired a hundred people uh, over the past couple of years in the state of Nebraska, uh, and it's a it's a mix of you know we do have our our kind of headquarters here now, but we also have our plant, and we've got a little over half of those jobs at the plant. And these are super exciting jobs. These are like those true life changing advanced manufacturing jobs. These are you know lifelong. These plants last for fifty years. Um, they're good paying. They have training. Um, I think they give people like pride pride in what they're producing. Um, I think especially like this next generation, where you know what they're what they're working on matters to them, and that doesn't just to a- apply to us. You know, like tech folks, it also applies to people manufacturing. Um, so that's been really thrilling. It's it's super exciting when we expand the plant because we're gonna have a thousand jobs, kind of total as that. I think about 300 of them directly at the plant in these kind of advanced manufacturing uh, positions. Um, it, it's just, I think, part of the energy transition story that often doesn't get told. Um, and this is the part that's more important, I think, to us, is this type of economic impact instead of like, you know, monolith de and these people made X million dollars. It's like, yeah, who cares about that when it's like, no, we want to build these plants that can have hundreds, thousands of really good-paying jobs and impact communities and bolster their tax base and better schools and better roads and all of the economic development that comes out of it. And it's been cool to see it firsthand, living here and having kids in school here and all that kind of stuff.
1: Rob, if Monolith succeeds, what will the company look like in a decade? And I 1st it's worth noting, I first met you... Maybe five years ago, we were speaking on a panel together at Stanford, and so that was that was half of the life of the company ago. Uh, and so you all are ten years now, so a lifetime of the company from now. What is that? What does that look like for Monolith?
2: <laughs> yeah, what's, I think it was like a Bill Gates quote of you you overestimate what you can achieve in a year and underestimate what you can achieve in a decade. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll, I'll try to be bold on it. I mean, I think I think we could be, you know, one of the really important energy transition companies that, you know, are dealing with single digit percentage of CO2 emissions. When you think of, you know, hydrogen being a gigaton today of CO2 and and first cleaning that up, but then also where hydrogen can go and heavy transportation and steel, you know, steel's like 8% of global CO2. So I think we can be, you know, a big player. Um, And and that's how I kind of see climate going is that there's going to be you know, 50 companies that really matter and are each doing a few percent of it. Um, Of course, there'll be a tail. But I mean, I think we could be one of those. And so what that looks like, I think, is we figured out how to build assets repeatably. And that's both finance and execution model. Um, We obviously figure out our end markets um, and being able to, you know, supply them and everything that is involved in that. And then I think it's that the human talent, both on the kind of tech side of being able to really build up the company um, in the usual places. I mean, we're still in the Bay Area and we're hiring there, but also in some, you know, growth parts of the country. We've got an office in Kansas City. We've got an office in Denver. We've obviously here in in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, we're likely going to go to Akron, Ohio. And so we've got like a really good dynamic workforce in those places. And then at the asset levels that, you know, we're really getting that advanced manufacturing uh Employees and, and that's scaling and there's like a culture that connects all of those different parts of the business together and I think the culture is this like shared vision that we're going to be an important you know factor in helping prevent climate change mm-hmm. so that's the vision in 10 years I love it
1: I'm on board uh, and if Monolith were to fail why would it fail?
2: why would it fail? Uh, asteroid? <laughs> asteroid <laughs> 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 no, I don't know. It's it's like I'm such an optimist that it's it's hard. But um, I, I think us figuring out this asset level finance, as wonky as that sounds, like I don't think we're at a point anymore where we could fail as a company. Like we'll be around for decades and we'll have assets. You know whether we can grow to our full potential is probably the bigger one. And if if we don't figure that out. If like all we do is figure out how to build the first plant and then, you know, live off a kind of cash flow stream from that forever, that would feel like failure to me. And so, to get past that is attracting the human talent and then figuring out project level financing so that you can repeatedly build billion plus dollar assets um, and and scale up.
1: Just about every founder we've had on what it takes has been within months, weeks, days or in some cases, hours of shutting their doors, how close has Monolith come?
2: Yeah, we're we're probably in that like hours to maybe a day time horizon. So, you know, like I was saying, you you have ups and downs. And one of our downs was when we went to build the first commercial unit, we thought it was going to cost X and it cost 2X. Um, And so we went to raise that capital to, you know, fund the overage of a half-built plant and get it to the end. Um, And it wasn't also just like a great time in the market. And it was just really hard. Um, And this kind of goes to my previous comment. Eventually, our kind of existing shareholders funded it. Um, And so because there wasn't new capital to come in for that, it just was a a down cycle. But that got right to the wire, like right to the wire. And it was... It's kind of the valley of death in these, right? Building your first commercial unit because that first commercial unit isn't going to have great economics on the other end, but it is going to be in that hundred million dollar kind of range, and so it's uh, it's a big bet for folks. Um, and you know, we almost almost didn't make it across that valley, but uh, picking the right shareholders early got us there. And so I'm like ever thankful for them to have made that investment at kind of a darker time in the company's history, and. And now it's behind us. Like, now we're crossed. The thing works. It's up and running. And, you know, we're ready to, to build more of them.
1: Would the advice then for entrep- entrepreneurs to be to raise 2x what you think it's going to cost? Or, or is there another takeaway that, that one should learn from this?
2: Yeah, it's always hard because it's, it's like you want to raise capital, but you do also want to be efficient in, you know, the timing. I think it's mostly just that pick the right partners because whether you you know run out of money halfway through building your first you know commercial unit or something else happens it takes you longer to get customers or whatever tech isn't working as you hope there's going to be something and, and that's where I just that caution I think had we done another model where you know we inflated our value as much as we could previously and in the process you know pissed off some of our existing founding shareholders you know and jammed Weird governance into it, then you find yourself in that position, and maybe you don't make it. Um, and you've got some super weird liquidation preference, you know, whatever it looks like. Uh, but we didn't have that. We had like a, a nice structure, good governance. We had good partners. They believed in the company long term. They'd seen us get through some other hard spots, and so they eventually funded. Um, was that the last minute? But you're here. I'm happy you're here.
1: Um so I know you you talked about starting Monolith with Pete who you decided to part ways with about 3 years ago. What happened and what advice would you give to founders who are navigating that kind of transition?
2: Yeah, so I mean it maybe I'll just start with like Pete and I are still super close. Pete's on the board, he's still an advisor to the company. I mean he's he he does a ton. Um Pete's also now the CEO of another company. Um and so he's, you know, certainly uh kind of <laughs> It, it was it was not a step uh, backwards in his career. It was kind of, you know, you could say Monolith was like a launch for him. I, I think what happened a couple of things, like we got to the point where the company needed a CEO. Um, and I think either Peter or I could have done it. I was willing to go to Nebraska and kind of pick up and our life circumstance allowed that to happen and that was important for the company. And I think we just kind of like recognized that you know, it, it could have in another circumstance been Pete that was the CEO because of just how it, it worked out. But I think what was like super mature of Pete and, and you know, I, I, I think a lot about it now is like he kind of got that it wasn't going to work if, you know, I was the CEO and he like slipped back into another position because part of the company would go to him and it, it just, you kind of needed that unified leadership and the move of the company made sense. And so he kind of like went to the next one and did it in like a, a super productive way. Also, you know, did it in a way where like to this day, he's doing everything he can to make Monolith successful and was, you know, did everything he could to keep our relationship, which was super important to both of us. So I think it was just kind of the circumstance of the situation. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, uh, it it's never easy, right? Like we were best friends that started the company together. Um advice to founders who are going through the same thing is i think um i don't know i think just just have the conversations like be you know be mature about it yeah but it's it's not going to be super easy
1: what has it been like being a partner um to your wife a parent to your kids a ceo what's it like being all three of those things at the same time
2: i mean it's obviously busy but it's also like it's it's been awesome and it is one thing for for like anyone listening that's thinking about getting into deep tech and climate tech like a nice thing is that because you build these companies over decades you can have more work life balance than if you're in like a mad dash in enterprise software where you've got 50 companies doing the same thing and the way you win is that you just go a little bit faster by working a little bit harder and 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 so, like I think, at all, we've been able to do a good job, I've I've certainly been able to balance uh, those aspects of life, and like don't feel like I'm missing out on, you know, time with my kids or like developing the relationship with my wife. And so, that's been really really rewarding. And I think it is true about these deep tech climate companies that you can have a little more balance because of their nature of taking so so long.
1: Last question before we move into our high voltage round. What will the future of clean hydrogen look like a decade from now?
2: I think it's going to be a lot of different production methods, right? I think it's also going to be a focus on first take that 100 million tons of hydrogen that we produce every single year for essential things like ammonia to grow the food of the world and clean it up. I think sometimes people get really excited about the hydrogen could also do this and that's exciting—the growth side of the market. But man, we've we've got this huge gigaton-scale challenge to clean up, and so I think that's what you're going to see: is is new technologies that make the same hydrogen but make it cleanly uh, to start decarboning those sectors, and then you're going to see the market sort out, and people will fight about it, and there'll be all types of stories about where hydrogen will and won't apply, but it will grow. You know, and it'll grow faster than global GDP because it will find some niches into, like I was saying, I think some heavy transportation and steel, for example. And so I think then in 10 years, you're going to see some of that emerging, and that'll be really exciting to go beyond just that first gigaton of reduction.
1: Rob, excited to move into what is often my favorite part, the high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers, quick meaning like five second answers. Starting with Rob, if you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why?
2: Well, I I thought this one was coming, so I thought about it. So I would be a lab rat because (laughs) I feel like I'm designed.
1: (laughs) This is the first. I'm
2: designed specifically (laughs) to like do a maze and solve problems. (laughs) Amazing,
1: amazing. Uh, What inspires you? Uh,
2: I think that there's still discovery out there, like fundamental discovery.
1: If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
2: Probably just do the same thing like over and over and over again. <laughs> um, and, and if that's not acceptable, then I think at some point I'd love to get into like teaching, um, you know, university or something.
1: Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success?
2: Uh, probably my parents.
1: Uh, what is the best investment you've ever made?
2: I got to marry my best friend. Mm. So that was probably it.
1: What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe?
2: I think I used to think that there was a path to what I call a low emission or low energy, low emission. We just all kind of like reduce and we get there. But now I'm like firmly the future's high energy, low emission.
1: When are you your best self?
2: Probably when I'm in the mountains.
1: What is your worst trait?
2: I, I think I can get to decisions without taking enough input from a broad and diverse enough group.
1: If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be?
2: Man, that's a there's a lot of things you <laughs> want to change. So maybe I won't go super deep on this one. I would just get rid of social media. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: support that. If there was just one or two people who were gonna hear this podcast, who would you want it to be?
2: Ah uh, man, I think maybe my kids, but maybe like in like ten years and like if they could think, Oh, you were like cool, maybe. <laughs> Maybe they think that. (laughs) We will store
1: this for them and play it in 10 years. What is your best quality?
2: Uh, Probably my persistence.
1: Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because...
2: Their products are too expensive.
1: If you really knew me, you would know...
2: That I could exist solely off of potato chips.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We might need another intervention. (laughs) Success is...
2: Doing what you love as much as possible.
1: If I could have done one thing differently, I would have?
2: Told people more how I feel about them.
1: In what kind of way? In like the, I like you or don't like you kind of way?
2: <laughs> no, I, I think I I think so highly of so many people that are kind of close to me, but I don't necessarily tell them that as much as I should.
1: If the world knew me for one thing, it would be?
2: Uh, helping have an impact on solving the climate crisis.
1: I'm most proud of?
2: Probably my kids.
1: Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is?
2: Obsession and the belief in the impossible.
1: Mm, well said. Rob, such a huge fan of of you as a person, first and foremost, and also what you're building. And I feel really honored to have met you, you know, yeah, h- half of the company life ago and to see what you've achieved. I'm totally in awe and look forward to continuing to cheer you on and and support everything you're doing
2: well, thank you for all your help along the way, which has been a lot over the past five years and for doing this.
1: Rob Hansen is the co-founder and CEO of Monolith. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive What It Takes sponsor, BakerBots. To scale your clean energy business faster, you can reach out to their global team of lawyers. Visit bakerbots.com. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with globally leading corporations to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Powerhouse Ventures invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly decarbonize our global energy and mobility systems. And we are hiring. Powerhouse is hiring a head of business development and an associate, and Powerhouse Ventures will be hiring an associate or senior associate soon. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. That's powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. Follow us on Twitter at Join powerhouse. You can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Don't forget to leave a review or a post on social media by March 15th to enter to win a What It Takes crew neck and to help others discover the show. Our favorite recent review is from Tivo Tavo, who says, There are a lot of climate podcasts out there, but I love how this one is focused on the humans and the stories along the way. So many of the humans working on climate are wonderful people. This is a great way to get to know them. Thank you, Tivo Tavo. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey, Dalvin Abawaji, Rye Story Fisher, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch, this is What It Takes.